This is Deep Dives, and I'm your host, Matt Samuels. We are joined remotely this week by Miles Gross. Miles, long time no speak. How are you? I am swell, Matt. How are you doing? I am doing well. I was just looking, and we have not done a show in about a month, believe it or not. I've been trying to get away from you, Matt. I don't know how you got this number. You know, I keep saying, I keep texting this number saying, hey, you know, when are we, what's going on with the guests? And I, it comes back, uh, it comes back um, empty. So I guess, I guess, you know, you've been, you've been ducking my, my texts and my calls. Yeah. You know, 2022, you know, new year, new me, just trying to be someone different, not, you know, just pretend to be someone different, I guess, this year. And uh, I guess that means no podcast for me. So I blocked, blocked your number. I got a new phone. Uh I don't know how you got this number. I don't know what's going on here. I talked I've to my been, agent. You ghosted me. I, I did the ghost, or uh, I, I don't know what the, what the kids are calling it these days. A Casper. You were like Casper. Casper. Yeah. Um, well, yes, I did track you down. I have a friend, a uh, friend of the show, who is in the CIA. We gotta get them on the show, Matt. You know what? We should. But he he tracked down a burner phone registered in like Uruguay. What to you? I think it's pronounced Uruguay. Uruguay. Okay. So this was. I don't even want to go to the backstory, but we somehow we got to your burner, which led us to a new apartment that you're living in. I I don't I don't know what's going on with your life. If this is like a double life situation, but uh, it seems like you're a man on the move right now. Yeah, I just want to not be in the same place for more than a day. I feel like that's just the way I want to live my life right now. Okay. Okay. Well, you know what? You I'm glad. I'm listen. It's I don't know if like you're wanted by the law or or what what's going on here, but uh, it seems like you uh, you know you're a man you're a man in motion, and that's if that's what you have to do, that's what what you have to do. So yeah, thank you. I appreciate you for understanding me. That's really nice of you. So um, well, I'm glad we I'm glad we got you to to settle down for a couple seconds here. And uh, and and have you and have you on to introduce our guest this week, Bill Chen. And Bill is the uh, managing partner and the founder of Rhizome Partners. They uh, he's he has a phenomenal track record uh, investing in predominantly real estate companies, undervalued companies that he is able to um, that he's able to to find that are kind of under the radar. Um, and, and Bill has a great sense of of picking these companies. And and like I said, he's done really well. But, you know, more to Bill's story is he's got a really fascinating backstory. He's worked he worked at Citigroup during the financial crisis. He worked growing up as a kid in his family's uh, Chinese takeout uh, business, learned a lot of lessons there about that business, has some great stories to tell. Um and is really up to some really exciting good stuff. We're going to talk about some of his biggest holdings, some of the companies that 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 he likes a lot, um, and he you know he thinks are going to continue to grow over time. So Bill and I had a great chat, uh, and looking forward to to sharing that. Miles, uh, we're going to let you go here because you know we don't we don't know what's going on in your neck of the woods right now. But uh, you know, hope to. We only have a couple shows left until we wrap up the season. I hope hope you hope you can uh, dial in for the next one. Oh, you you're gonna expect me to still continue doing the show? Yes, you you your contract goes through thirty five episodes. 
Oh, jeez. I, I got to read the fine lines there. You didn't read that. Con- you, when you signed the contract, I said 35 episodes we, you need to No, commit. it's like one of those, like, Apple, like, terms and agreements when you get, like, a new product and you just, you know, it's like 50 pages. You scroll to the bottom, you click accept, right. and you just want to move on. My contract with you was, was three te- sentences. That's the only problem. I think it was about a well, paragraph. I'll have to double check those three sentences because I don't recall that. You know what? You have you know what? Have your attorney call my attorney, and you know I, I didn't want it to get to this, but if that's the way it goes, Miles, then you know then then that's the way this thing goes. So we'll have to have an episode of just my attorney speaking to your attorney, and just <laughs> yes. us not speaking on that episode. That that would be much li- must listen to uh, podcast right there. Very, a very costly episode, but uh, yes. But hopefully uh, it'll pay off. A lot of esquires, a lot of esquiring going on. There you go. Got it. All right. Well, Miles, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for being here. Uh, best of luck with whatever's going on in your life right now, and uh, we will be right back with Bill Chen. And we are back on Deep Dives with our guest this week, Bill Chen. Hey, Bill, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast, Matt. It's my pleasure. This has been a long time in the making. I've you're you're a guest that I've I've wanted on for for quite some time, and you know I really appreciate you you taking the time and uh, you know looking forward to this uh, to this conversation. Thanks uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Well, thank you for the very kind words. So let's let's start from the beginning. Uh, let's start, you know, when you were when you were a kid, Bill. You know, what were your early interests growing up? You know, obviously, you know, we're going to get to what you're doing today in real estate and and all that good stuff. But you know, when you were a kid, were, were you thinking about real estate? Were you thinking about business, or um, did that was that kind of an early part of your life, or did this kind of um, for a start, you know, later, um, you know, as you, as you got older. So, so it's interesting. I think, um, a lot of people in the, um, asset management or, or, or fund business started out because they had a very early interest in, um, in stock picking. Maybe they had a father figure who was into stocks and gave him, you know, some stock certificates. Um, I've been to Berkshire Hathaway where, uh, young kids would say, you know, I was picking stock when I was eight years old and I was going to mm-hmm. Omaha when I was 10. Uh, or you, you have young kids who who like to trade uh, trading cars and they were hustling other kids in the playground with trading cars. But I um, early on, I had uh, very little interest in, in business, and, but I accidentally had about a 12 year career in business from when I was about 10 years old till I was about 22. Uh, and that's mostly because my family, like a lot of other Chinese immigrants, were in the Chinese takeout business. So think think of a strip mall out on Long Island, New York. Um, it is um, one of 15 uh, Chinese takeouts in the town. And we, my, my, you know, my dad, my mom, my siblings, we all worked in the takeout, um, you know, just taking orders. Uh, uh, so that was kind of my foray into business at a very, very young age. Um, I gained proficiency in English, the fastest in my family. Mm. So I involuntarily uh, involuntarily became kind of the fixer for my family and some of our relatives. And what I mean by that is um, 
when we have an issue of a customer complaint or if the health department came and and you know when we have to negotiate the lease with our landlords they said call bill he's going to take care of it but mm-hmm. i was 12 years old i was 12 years old and i was kind of accidentally uh being you know taken on a, a quasi managerial role at a very 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 young age just kind of thrusted into the situation and uh, for a really long time, I didn't know how to describe and articulate the responsibilities and the business experience I was gaining. It wasn't really until I was in my 30s that I looked back and realized, wow, I, I had a whole decade of experience before I even went to college. It's almost like you got a, a master's degree <laughs> as, <you> know, <laughs> as a 12-year-old. I mean, you, you, it's the best hands-on like you said, you didn't even really know it, but at the time you were, you know, uh, you were you were out there, hands-on experience, you know, literally, um, you know, getting it done uh, as, as as such a young person. I would imagine you grew up probably faster, right? I mean, you as you know, being that age, you know, you being thrown in that situation, um, you probably kind of matured, uh, I'd imagine maybe, maybe at a, at an accelerated rate. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I definitely did. I definitely came from the, the school of hard knocks, uh, <laughs> from when I was caught like a sixth grade till I was a senior in college. Um, and, uh, you know, to just kind of jump into, uh, just, just kind of think about uh, what I did as a youngster. Um, uh, you know, because uh, my parents didn't speak any English, so I had to make all the payments. I would write out all the checks for them. I made all the payments uh, to the utility company. I uh, would negotiate with all our vendors uh, for waste removal. I remember one time I was negotiating uh, garbage removal. And it used to be really expensive, and I think um, uh, it, I think the industry got a little more competition, and I was able to negotiate our waste removal from three hundred dollars down to like eighty five. And I, I still remember the salesman coming in there, and and he's he's almost like really frustrated with me. He's like, kid, he's like, you drive me up the wall. He's like, I can't go any lower. And I'm like, well, make it happen somehow. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, 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 I, I, you know, at a very young age, I knew that the restaurant business was a was a really really tough business, and uh, it was a business that that had very low barriers to entry, but it had very high barriers to exit. And what I mean by it is that, um, kind of, the, the, uh, back then there was this wave of immigration to the U.S. from China. And everyone wanted to be their own boss. So you would have employees work for you. And then after five years, they will leave and they will kind of set up down the street uh, from your restaurant. So we were in a town of 50,000 in a town called Plainview, Long Island. And um, I think when my dad started, there were maybe five Chinese takeouts. And by the time I came to the U.S. in 1992, it had grown to about 15 restaurants for a population of 50,000. So there there was there was a pie. The pie wasn't getting bigger that much faster, but there there were a lot of people trying to get a piece of that pie. and everyone was just fighting for crumbs. Uh, the competition was fierce. Uh, 
The uh, menu was very overly complicated, uh, but everyone did that. Uh, there were about 200 items on the menu. Uh, there were probably 60 unique items, and it was very labor intensive. Uh, I remember, so I worked like at all parts of the restaurant. I worked front of the house, I worked back of the house. And when I used to work back of the house, like on a typical day, my dad and I would open the restaurant, you know, we would make soup in the morning, make about 20 gallons of soup in the morning. Then we would prep, uh, you know, I'm talking about, we would we would kind of chop up a hundred pounds of broccoli. We, we would kind of like take the skin off chicken and, and mm. debone it and save the bones and carcasses, make stock out of it. And we got to cut everything down to bite sizes, right? We're not just making like a beef patty, a burger and put some cheese on it. Like everything needs to be cut down to bite sizes. And, and there's so many different uh, items on the menu. We, we made our own dumplings, we, we, which you got to make the dough yourself. You got to ground the pork. You got to, we got, you know, we made our own spare ribs and, and that's a whole process where you got to marinate the spare ribs. You got to like, kind of like uh, steam it and then you got to cook it to order. It, it was, it was a very complex operation. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we probably made about a 20% EBITDA margin. And, and you may say, well, Bill, that's, that doesn't, that sounds like a pretty good business, 20% EBITDA margin. Most small businesses didn't, didn't make that kind of margin, but let me, let me like <laughs> tell you a little more, uh, <laughs> to make a 20% EBITDA margin. It, it meant that my dad and my mom were probably working 80 hours a week. Uh, and my siblings and I were probably working 20, 30 hours a week during, during when we had school. And we were working like 40, 60 hours a week within the summer. Uh, and that's how you made a 20% EBIT margin. But the sales, and I still remember, I remember all these numbers from, from um, I guess, like almost 30 years ago now. We did about, a, like, on average, we do about $1,000 in sales. So literally, you know, you you run a whole entire operation. Your whole family's working and we were pocketing about $200 a day in, in EBITDA. You know, this is, and, 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 and there's, there's, there's real depreciation, there's real economic depreciation in the restaurant because the restaurant does get older. So every kind of five, 10 years, you need to put some dollars into it and refresh it, right? So, so we were making with my dad, my mom working basically two jobs uh, and the kids, you know, throwing in a good chunk of hours we were making $6,000 of EBITDA a, uh, you know, a month. Uh, and, and, but like, we really needed to be reserving about a thousand dollars every month because eventually the rush one does need a refresh every five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. So it was a really, really tough way to make a living. Um, and, and, you know, if you kind of look, walk through like the model, like the, the unit economics, it's usually about 10% for rent. It's, uh, I, I remember like our rent our rent payment was $3,000 a month because that's, I used to write the checks for it. And mm -hmm. COGS, unlike a burger joint or QSR concept, where, where the COGS are much, much lower, like, you know, our COGS, our cost of food soda is about 40, 50%. Wow. And we would hire two, three people. The, the labor cost of labor is about 20, 25%. And and then you know you, you got utilities, you got waste removal, you got all sorts of permits, inspections, and and other miscellaneous costs of doing business, and you wind up with a twenty percent EBITDA margin. But but we were really everyone was were, were just buying themselves a job, 
and every family wanted to own their own restaurants. Uh, it was uh, it was an absolutely terrible way to make a living. <laughs> yeah, and imagine you know you kind of trading the pride of ownership for, like you just said, a a just a at the end of the day a, a rotten business. And you know what what I think, and and I think this is kind of obviously what happened is, you know you you, you it's interesting you went from this business that low margins high. Uh, you know, you, you're working around the clock, crazy hours, and not to say that real estate is easy by any stretch, but it's a much different business. So I find it so fascinating that you know now, um, and it's a great story. Your your family uh, real estate business started uh, from from a home equity loan, uh, which is you know I know you're going to talk a little bit about that, but the transition from the 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 restaurant Chinese uh, restaurant business to real estate. What was the reasoning for that? And it's just so interesting to me because it's kind of like night and day, um, very 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 different businesses. Yeah, I, I mean it it um, it it really was, and and it kind of happened. Uh, it kind of happened by by luck. Um, so we were we were we were uh, we really just we were just uh, scrimping by really weren't making mm-hmm. any any money in the restaurant business. Before we go on the home equity loan, I kind of want to share a funny story and, and just to to further describe how tough this business was. Uh, right. I remember I was like seventeen years old, and it was like a Friday night. It was super busy, and all of a sudden, like you know, we're, we're like backed up, and all of a sudden, I see one of our cooks throws a punch and hits the other cook in the face. Oh no. <laughs> and I, I'm like, oh my God, we're we're probably like 10, 15 minutes behind on every single water. Yeah. And I like run back there. And this is like, you know, I was I was in high school, I was 17 years old, and I, I played a little bit of football, I wrestle, and my instinct just tells me to go tackle the guy. So I literally <laughs> like run full speed and I tackle the guy who threw the punch. And in the process, like like we like landed on the sink and we like broke the sink that was like a half an inch of plastic, right? Like some sort of plastic composite. We like broke the sink in the, in, in the process. The guy who got punched in the face, now he's all angry. He's He quits on the spot and he like wants to get paid and, and he wants me to like, like drive him to the train station so he could go back to the city. So we're like understaffed, we're backed up. Now I got to deal with someone quitting on the spot. The guy that I tackle, he's like half speed now because he 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 he's like you know he's a little woozy from being tackled by me, <laughs> and I like realized as I was doing that, like as I got off from the ground, I'm like I'm like oh my god, there are knives everywhere, like I, like 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 there's knives everywhere in the kitchen, like this could have turned really ugly, oh, but. God. You know, it just really goes to, 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 and, and I think, you know, nowadays there are fund managers, hedge fund managers that, that want to do what Buffett did, which is buy an operating business. Right. And I just advise them, I'm like, if you never run a private business, like here are some stories I, I will tell you, it is brutal. <laughs> like just think twice about, it, right? Like this is a much better setup, just picking stocks. So going back to kind of how we got into the home equity loan. 
Um, it, it was kind of by accident. We, uh, I had an aunt who was also in the Chinese food business, but he and his husband, he, he and her husband were, were much more entrepreneurial and they started investing in real estate much, much earlier, kind of in the late nineties and kind of around 2002, um, uh, they, they came, came to my mom and said, you know, you should, you should buy a place. You, you have some equity in your house. Uh, so my dad bought a house in 1992 for $240,000. We put $60,000 down and we had a mortgage of about $180,000 and 8.75% interest. <laughs> like I'm a little dated right now, right? Oh my God. 8.75% interest and it was wow. a 15 year amortization and the payment was exactly $1,800. And I remember this because I used, again, I used to write all the checks for it, right? So after 10 years or so, you know, the, the principal has been amortized down to about $100,000 and uh, the home has appreciated a little bit. So we looked at a project. It was a um, three family walk up uh, building pre-construction in Woodside, Queens. Uh, was a little bit further away from the uh, the subway station, but it, it had a lot of square footage. It was about fourteen hundred square foot per floor, and uh, and my my family decided to go fifty fifty with another family relative into the project, um, and and we took out a home equity loan. I think I think it had a ten percent interest on it to use as down payment toward the project, uh, and this is right before September eleven. Uh, and, um, you know, took, uh, I think by the time we, um, um, we, we, we took possession of the, uh, of the project it was probably 2003, 2004. Uh, this was back, you know, like, like people should remember back then, like in the early two thousands, like New York city, certain parts of Queens and Brooklyn was still kind of consider a little bit grimy, a mm -hmm. little bit uh, dangerous, and uh, you know, you could like a house on Long Island may cost three, four hundred thousand dollars, but you buy a three family in Queens for like four hundred to six hundred thousand, like like you know, a, an older one, like or a brand new three family costs six six hundred thousand. So uh, the the project worked right away. Uh, it, it was a great project. You know, once we once we took possession. Got at least we were able to cash flow positively on a 15 year amortization on a 15 year mortgage. Uh, we were able to put some excess, you know, dollars into our pocket, and it was really then that that we realized that this this, <laughs> this is a pretty good business. You know, this was, uh, I mean, at 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 uh, you know, real estate in a way, especially apartment buildings, it's it's kind of housing as a service. Uh, people need, you know, it is one of the most fundamental needs for people. If you look at Maslow's hierarchy, right? If people need shelter and it's very hard to build in New York, there's, there's not a lot of land. Uh, and you know, our tenants were very good at paying us. And this is probably, so I graduated in 2004 from Cornell university. Uh, and, uh, that, that in early 2004 was also when I helped my family sell our restaurant. So we completely got out of the restaurant business and we, we kind of started going into the real estate business. But one thing that I've noticed, and this is like the earliest instant, um, uh, example I could think of where, where just doing what, what seemed obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, like create a lot of value. So, so my parents didn't speak any English, obviously. Uh, they were putting ads in the Chinese newspaper to look for tenants, but there was a huge discount between what tenants were willing to pay 
it, you know, when they when they look for apartments in a Chinese newspaper, it would pay about fourteen hundred for a three bedroom, uh, and um, the same bedroom like like will rent for about three thousand dollars today, uh, maybe even a little more for that same location. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that if I went on Craigslist and and just source kind of like like a different tenant pool. I was able to get about seventeen hundred dollars a month, so it was a three hundred dollar difference, which which is huge. It was over twenty percent difference in pricing. And yeah. I told my parents, and I said, "Do you mind if I run some ads in Craigslist see, see if I can find some tenants because we can get three hundred dollars?" And and we you know we found some good tenants. We we found uh, a couple younger people in their twenties, and they all have jobs. So so when they were paying six hundred dollars per bedroom. It was actually very affordable for them, and I like went on to completely retenant the entire building. And looking back, uh, it, you know, we we increased the rent row by eight hundred bucks uh, for the entire building, which is about ninety six hundred for the year. And usually, the value creation in real estate is a they call it like a twenty multiple, you mm-hmm. know, a five percent cap rate twenty cap rate. multiple. So, so I guess I could say that I created almost two hundred thousand dollars of value for the family by just mm. simply doing what was what was obvious, which is you know tap into the Craigslist pool. You know, today you went through Apartment.com and whatnot, but back in two thousand four, two thousand five, Craigslist was the the default place that you go to to rent for apartments. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Sometimes it's it's you know not to you know not to say that people are lazy, but sometimes if you just go the extra mile like you did and it's not you know reinventing the wheel you were and that's what i and that's what is so beautiful about about real estate is you you made what what you know the layman or someone who's not in this world would think oh three hundred dollars a month that's you know no big deal but right i mean when if you're if it's if you're judging this on a five cap you've you've totally changed uh you know the the value of that place and able to do it rather easily it's not like you had to even take out a hammer or you know fix a roof or do anything you were that's strictly done uh, numbers wise so uh you know i love hearing those stories because it just it it hammers home puts into perspective really the beauty of the business and uh, you know what you were able just by that noi increase um you know what you were able to uh, achieve there in in your mind bill why is new york city so special i mean what what makes it um unique uh you know especially coming out coming out of 911 like like you did with your family what and and the recovery that's taken place what why why invest in why did you originally uh invest in New York and why you know why has that been such a uh you know a, a special a special and and uh worthwhile investment over the years yeah i mean the um so to to Totally clarified. When we made our first investment, we uh, I don't think we knew what we were doing. <laughs> I think it was just on the recommendation of another aunt of ours who said, hey, you know, if you put 100K down, this is you, like like your lever returns once you lease it is somewhere in the teens. Uh, you, you know, just just like cash in your pocket. And then and then there's like price appreciation and whatnot. And I think it goes to, uh, so we didn't know what we were doing on our first project, um, but uh, and and since then we parlayed that that half of a property into about a dozen properties between all the siblings and and, and my parents, 
um, you know, probably collectively 60, 70 units total, uh, about a dozen buildings. Mm-hmm. But what makes New York so unique is that, uh, um, you know, uh, full disclaimer: I'm a I'm a total Buffett fan. Uh, you know sure. the reason why I'm in and uh, I'm in my biz uh, in the business that I'm in, picking public traded um, real estate stocks is because I read a book on Buffett and and it just resonated with me and I knew that's exactly what I want to do. But Buffett often talks about moats, right? So what are moats? Moats are a body water surrounding a castle so that people can't attack you, right? And when you look at the geography of New York City, you quickly realize that we're totally surrounded by water, right? We're we're on the east side. You got you get you know you get you, you got a river on the west side. You got yep. the Hudson River. You got the East River. You got Hudson River, and then it kind of empties out into the uh, Atlantic Ocean, and then parts of Queens and Brooklyn, it, it, we're all surrounded by water. And when you have water, you simply can't build on water, right? Yeah. So, so there's literally physical moats, right? Buffett used moats as a metaphor to describe barriers to entry. But when you talk about New York City, we literally have physical moats that that you can't build on. So, so, so there's a real lack of supply of of land. And when you do build, when you do build, you're usually there, there really aren't any large-scale empty lots. I mean, the last time something like that happened is Hudson Yards, yep. right? And that took 10, 20 mm-hmm. years of political well, lots of zoning, probably lots of, you know, kind of getting people on board. Uh, that's probably the last time I can remember a big-scale development being done in New York City. Yep. And for the most part, if you want to bring supply to the market, you got to, like, buy an older house, uh, knock it down, you may buy a house that's got 2,000 square foot and then knock it down, build something that, you know, 8,000 square foot. And that's very, very expensive. It takes a really long time. Just the 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 zoning, the demo, the, getting the plans approved could take one to three years. And then construction could take another two years. And, and there's all sorts of construction delay because you're building so close to your neighbor. They're usually calling the building department on you, trying to stop construction. They're, you know, sometimes they just just outright kind of um, almost like quasi blackmail you <laughs> because they're saying you're causing my foundation to settle. I mean, this this is just the nature yeah. of the developer in New York City, right? And um, and then there's a nimbyism. No one wants more buildings in the neighborhood. Like no one, if you own, if you own a, a nice apartment with a great view, you don't want something taller blocking your view, right? So everyone, although people are very liberal in New York City, the reality is that people don't want more <laughs> density near them. Sure. So, so that makes New York City very unique. If you look at it like overhead view of new york city you got central park you got all these tall buildings these tall structures there's just literally no more land for you to build right the second part that makes new york city so unique and and i guess we could speak from experience because because in the 20 years that my 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 family and i've been involved in new york city real estate we've seen three different crises we've seen september 11 we've seen the great financial crisis and we we've seen COVID. and every single time it seems like this is it new york is done like no one wants to be here anymore and and every single time it turns out to be an opportunity to pick up bargains like you know new york city will always be expensive new york city real estate will always be expensive every 10 years you get an opportunity to buy to buy you know at a bargain and i think it's because cities particularly new york city and its density 
is has real network effects, right? So if you're a young 20 year old, you, you, you're, you're an Ivy grad or a Stanford or an MIT grad, and you want to find a good paying job and have great dating prospects and meet really interesting people, you move to New York. I mean, you know, I have these conversations with people all the time and people, uh, you know, like, is New York still attractive? And, and last year there were a lot of headlines. Everyone's moving out of New York City. No one wants to be here anymore. It's like, well, Captain Obvious, uh, there's a <laughs> virus. There's a virus where you could potentially die from uh, if you live like way in really, really dense, uh, you know, uh, proximity to each other. So once people became vaccinated, the, the young folks flooded back into the city. Uh, and um, I think I think I talked to some of my friends who will self-describe themselves as being a five on a scale of one to ten. They, they will describe themselves as a five and they say, Bill, you know, this is the only city where I could go on five dates a week with with like new people. Sure. And, and also when I go out, I could take them to like go to a museum. I could take them to a Mission Star restaurant. The, the amenities here are just amazing. And, and you know, time after time, you know, every 10 years you get a crisis where people say New York City is dead and it, it keeps coming back. And, you know, Charlie Munger, who's a vice chair of Berkshire Hathaway, says that you want to bet on things that will not change. And there's been so much change, especially with technology disruption. You know, what what do I want to bet on? I want to bet on that that nimbyism is here to stay. People don't want people to build more buildings in New York City. And I also want to bet on that that people who are 20, 22 to 35 who are single, their hormones will drive their decision making. They want to live Absolutely. in a place where they could date people. I, I jokingly call this the Tinder premium. <laughs> you know, trademark pending, right? Trademark pending, the sure. Tinder premium. And that is you open up your Tinder app, right? How deep is that liquidity pool, right? I joke that if you look like Chan Tatum, you're going to be fine anywhere. You're going to be fine in Kansas. You're going to be fine in some small <laughs> town, right? But if you look at like the entry-level analysts at, at investment bank, big law, management consultant, uh, or tech, you know, Tend to like like a lot of them are 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 East Asian or South Asian, and this is their best dating pool, right? And 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 it's like I, I joke about these things, but then you know I've also have like twenty years of observation to to back sure. up on them. So so uh, you know that's what I want to bet on. I want to bet on that people still want to live uh, in a place that has a very high Tinder premium. And uh, and I, I'm willing to bet that it's increasingly going to be harder to to build in New York City, and it's going to be very hard to bring bring on new supply. No, it makes for all those reasons, it makes perfect sense. And like you said, I mean, there 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 people have have pronounced uh, New York City dead so many times. You know, those three you mentioned recently. Uh, it just not only does it come back to life, but what's amazing is it happens. Two things. It happens quickly. I mean, right now, if you look at, at the real estate market in New York City, it's actually above 2019 levels if you look at sale prices. And um, and it's just the resiliency of it. I mean, it's it's just it's unlike, I think, any market probably in the world in that 
for all the reasons you just described, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it, uh, it, it just, it's, 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 it's like that, that, you know, that, that fortress, that, that brick wall that you just can't, you can't level. And, and every time, uh, you know, we think that, that, you know, this is the one it's never coming back. It just, not only does it come back, but it comes back stronger. I, I'm interested. You mentioned the, the great recession back, back in 08, 09, you have an interesting perspective um, because you were actually you were working at Citigroup at the time, and as we know, the financials, you know, were, were at the center of the storm. Really, what you know helped create uh, the the chaos and 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 what transpired. What was that like? Um, you know, b- being you know relatively young at the time uh, and kind of witnessing firsthand the the implosion of um, you know of, of the stock market of the U.S. economy. I mean, that was that was an incredible experience, and and in hindsight, that was probably one of the best ways to learn how to underwrite real estate investments. Because uh, I joined Citigroup in in their um, middle market real estate investment banking group uh, in uh, in late '06, and the whole group got gutted in early '09, and I went in there. Then a time when people thought you can't lose money in real estate, the underwriting standards were, were, were very loose and uh, there were a lot of capital chasing uh, very few assets. And um, and uh, it, it was incredible to see because uh, I was sitting at a desk where our, our man, main mandate was to sell, uh, to represent uh, clients of Citigroup uh, to help them liquidate their real estate holdings and bring those assets to manage in-house. And we, I, I worked on a mall deal, uh, you know, where we represented a seller in a 3 million square foot uh, kind of B mall in the Midwest. I, I worked on a hotel deal and we would occasionally have people call us uh, as as the crisis started uh, to, to kind of unwind, we would have people call us on a weekly basis. I'm a developer. I, uh, you know, my my construction loans come and due. I need to find an equity injection. Otherwise, I'm going to go bankrupt, right? That was like the consistent theme. The consistent theme was someone was developing some sort of condo hotel someone was doing a golf course residential development someone was buying up land in arizona in the desert because they had they had a view that the um the logistics was going to move from phoenix to mesa arizona and everyone financed it were very short-term financing because they figured i could flip this in two years because we, we were able to flip in in 30 days in the past you know uh this was all going to happen the demand for these assets we're never gonna go away. Like like these, the, the the hard assets were as liquid as cash. I I can get out anytime I want, and everyone, you know, like that saying, when tide goes out, you knew who's been swimming naked. Everybody right. got almost everyone got there. You know, got caught with their pants down, mm. and uh, uh, and 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 I probably looked at, uh, you know, I looked at probably hundreds of deals during that time. And most of them failed. You know, the mall deal that we represented that got taken back to uh, to Bear Stearns, uh, and I saw there on the writing, uh, you know, kind of kind of like you know, there's a mortgage on it, there's a mess piece on it. Uh, you, you know, you have very tiny little equity cushion in there, 
And that was a great learning experience because I still apply those lessons today. When I look at a real estate deal, I, I just go through my, my checklist of how deals fail back in 08 and 09. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, it was some combination of very short duration financing, some sort of bridge, bridge loan where it came due in two years, but it, it really took four years for your, for your construction project to be complete and fully leased and start cash flowing so you could service the debt. And, and that, that theme consistently uh, popped up time after time. And then you, you start understanding that, you know, development, the, the spectrum of risk of different deals, right? If you're buying a stabilized building, it has a certain risk profile. If you're buying something, if you're buying land out in the air, uh, in, in the desert and you're putting infrastructure down, uh, that's got a very large range of outcomes and duration in terms of when you stabilize that asset. Uh, and, uh, you know, I see these, uh, I see these issues all the time. There's like, you know, public traded companies where an idea would get pitched and it make the rounds, uh, among investors. And I'll look at a deal and I say, uh, you know, like th there's too much leverage and not, you're not, you know, or the duration doesn't make sense, or this asset is facing secular challenges and, and, and I, we don't want exposure to that. And, um, you know, lucky for us, like we, we, we've applied all those lessons that I learned from there. That was an incredible learning mm -hmm. experience on someone else's dime. Yeah, that's, you know, it, it's, you were really in the center, center of the world there. I mean, literally, <laughs> you know, just you were, that's what everyone, you know, front, front row seat, which, um, you know, what's interesting is uh, I'm, I'm curious to know, you, you know, we'll talk about, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into Rhizome uh, Partners, uh, which is your current, um, your current venture, current, current company that you started fund. Uh, how did that influence starting Rhizome coming out of your Citigroup experience? Uh, was were you looking for for what you're doing today? Did it influence? Hey, I need to you know I'm going to take this firsthand experience and 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 put it towards you know a vehicle like this. How did that transition um, into Rhizome uh, happen? Yeah, I mean I uh, so kind of late '06. I didn't know about Buffett until when I started to working work for Citigroup, and th there was, um, there was uh, they, they laid out a table. They, 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 someone was selling books in the lobby, and I picked up a few books. One of it was uh, Buffett's biography, and by Roger Lowenstein, and I read it like like a lot of other uh, kind of Buffett fans. I, I it just instantaneously makes sense, and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So that was in. 2006. So in late 2006, I made up my mind that someday I want to run my own investment firm. And there's also an element of, um, you know, I, I was an athlete in high school. I love the concept of, um, you know, the competitive nature, the ability to keep score and the ability to kind of keep working at a craft that you really, really enjoy and love and 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 that's really a puzzle uh that that you know i wake up every day try try to solve and uh the ability to have longevity in a craft like this where it, you know i play five years of sports and that was it like you know uh, <laughs> like, like i i basically ended my athletic career after high school but you know what was really uh great about 
running rhizome running investment firm is that is that that you know i could do this in into my 70s 80s and 90s uh buffett's still going so so it it was finding buffett finding value and you know most of my investors will say that you know when you read about buffett and value investing you either make sense you, you either get it right away or you don't and i got it right away and where the transition from Citigroup to Rhizome, you know, after Citigroup, I went to work for a, um, you know, a private equity firm that invested in China. And I did that for two years. And I noticed that that my passion deep down, my passion was really to, um, I, I, I really wanted to run my own firm. And that's when I took my savings in 2011. I, I quit the private equity job and I kind of stayed home and read everything I can on value investing. And I invested my own private capital for two years. And I think by 2013, I realized that I have enough tools in the toolbox to create a partnership. And initially on day one, it was it was just myself. I put a quarter million dollars, my own capital, and my two siblings who uh, gave me $100,000. We launched with $350,000 or $360,000 on day one. Uh, and we I bootstrapped the business uh, till today, eight years later. And, and you know, to kind of uh, go from Citigroup to Rhizome, um, you know the Citigroup experience, and 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 all of this is I didn't I didn't necessarily un understand it at the time, but in hindsight it all made a ton of sense, right? My family having the private real estate exposure, I was involved with leasing, and when you own properties, over time you really really fundamentally understand how the money is made, what's real economic depreciation, what's a budget you really need to replace something that gets worn out. <clears throat> And I also had a stink as a HVAC engineer. So I, I, I was designing, you know, HVAC water plumbing systems uh, behind the wall. So I didn't realize at a time, but, but I, I, my whole career was this like meandering way for me to, to uh, run uh, a strategy that involves investing in the public markets, uh, in the public markets uh, where we find undervalued real estate companies. So the HVAC experience like helped me understand, you know, spaces and 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 plumbing systems. The the private ownership helps me understand, you know, leasing, how to fix stuff that breaks. What's what's a real economic depreciation? What's a real maintenance capex on a project? And the real the Citigroup experience was a way for me to really learn how to underwrite deals and 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 try to figure out like how do you really stress test an investment. Um, so we, when, after we launched Rhizome in early uh, 2013, we very quickly realized that the market is largely efficient, but we did realize that there's an area that was very inefficient, and that is when you find publicly traded company uh, that is not a REIT, uh, so it's a C-Corp uh, that owns some mixture of um, uh, cash flow and assets, and non-cash flow and assets such as land holdings, development rights, or even construction in 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 progress, right? Uh, it doesn't look like a cookie cutter clean 
uh, REIT uh, that pays you a 3% dividend yield that everyone could kind of slap a cap rate on and, and arrive at a value. And what it really require you to do is it re really require you to uh, dig down deep, to go out, put boots on the ground, and, and try to like come up with a NAV analysis. And it mm -hmm. takes time, it takes effort. A lot of the buy side don't like doing it because it takes a long time to update their model. But right. we run fairly concentrated. You know, we we our top real estate uh, positions are more than 10% of the fund. So we approach it like my family did on the private side. Before we put a position on, we would try to do everything that we can to learn about the, you know, the collection of assets, give it a appraisal, understand how the management team is underwriting deals. How are they allocating capital? Are they friendly to, to shareholders? I mean, there's there's a few situations where we, we've like mapped out the family tree of the family that owns some of these companies. And we know mm -hmm. we know if like the Gen 3, Gen 4, you know what their job titles are. Uh, because it's very important to to understand what management uh, management's incentives are, uh, but you know we've also gone on three thousand mile road trips up and down the East Coast to to look at rock pits in Georgia and Florida to look at you know uh, apartment developments on the water in D.C. Uh, I've been out down to North Carolina to look at uh, warehouses, uh, and and that's something. You know, uh, going back to what I learned from Citigroup, I remember when we were representing the mall deal, I was doing, I was crunching the numbers as an analyst, and my boss went out and, and he toured the properties, and he came back, and as an, an young analyst, I'm like, these are pretty good assets. I mean, they're very cash generative. I mean, my boss goes, uh, you know, this asset in, in in this state, in this state, these two are okay. The third one, he's like, ah, they're going to give that back to the lender. And I was shocked. I was like, how do you know? How do you know? I'm like, I'm like, the numbers look fine. And he said, well, you go into the mall and there's a Chinese buffet at the entrance. He's like, if you're a mall and you have a Chinese buffet as a tenant at your entrance at the most prime location, he's like, you're done as a mall. You're, you're going to have to give that back to the lender. And that was the singular experience. So something I find interesting, Bill, is, you know, I'm, I'm more uh, my day to day is more uh, focused on the private markets and Rhizome. Uh, focus really is the public markets. And there's obviously, you know, like anything in life, there's there's pros and cons of of both. You know, doing this for a while now in the public forum, uh, what what are what do you see as the pros and and cons um, of you know doing this, you know, via the vehicle of of uh, of the stock market? Yeah, I mean, I think the. Um, um, at least for our strategy, so I, I can't speak for everybody, right? At least for us, where we've generally been able to do is we, we've been able to buy into an investment at 50% of private market liquidation value. And, and that is defined by if you ran an auction uh, and you know a number of bidders show up to bid on these assets, we generally could buy assets on day one at about 50, 60 cents on a dollar. So that's that's a huge pro uh, because I don't think I talked to a lot of private real estate investors and I don't get the sense that they could buy at that kind of price. Um, another no. you know another big pro is <laughs> I can I can I can tell you that yeah that's that's not in our in our in our uh, 
underwriting that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 a pro and a con, right? Like it's 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 a it's a feature and a bug. It's a feature in that like you get in that that kind of price, but sometimes they could they could stay at at, at a big discount uh, over two, three, four years. So that sometimes you get a little frustrating. I mean that that's the con, right? The other pro is that it's liquid. You could buy at a um, you could buy in small increments. As opposed to in the private side, it's very uh, – I, I kind of describe it as on a private side, you got to buy the whole cow, right? You can't buy two pounds of hamburger. And on the public side, a lot of times we could buy a small increment, and as we get to – as we do more underwriting, we could we could kind of increase our position. Or or if a position has run up more, you, you want to take some chips off the table, you can manage manage your risk by taking as opposed to on the private side i think you generally have to either do a cash out refi or you got to sell the whole asset i mean you could kind of slowly do some joint venture but that's usually reserved for the bigger assets um so you know on the public side the other thing that's that's um that's nice is you you a lot of times have a lot of information going back multiple years on the management team uh where where you 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 have a history. You can audit them, how they allocated capital, how they actually, uh, you know, treated minority shareholders. Are you know, are they uh, are, are they people who you could trust? Uh, the con in the public market is you don't have control. You're, you're delegating. You're agreeing to delegate responsibility to the management team, uh, both on the operations and capital and 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 capital allocation. And then there's you know. That the markets could kind of continue to trade at a very large discount, and sometimes you don't have a f- way to force it to to that discount to close, mm. and and this that's an area that we pay a lot of attention to. Well, you know, we we generally try to figure out will the market, uh, you know, what's a mechanism for the market to agree with us for that for that discount to close, uh, in in usually in the three year time frame. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you could be uh, investing in something that doesn't pay a dividend. So, so you, you, there may not be a cash distribution. Now, on the private side, uh, the pro sometimes could be that there is no mark to market. So you're forced to hold it through a very volatile time period. And, and as, right. as weird as that sounds, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of private owners and private equity uh, and, and pension funds do like that feature where they say, I'm committed to owning this. And I, there's no mark that I could look at on a daily basis. You could typically use more debt on the private side. And it uh, tends to be very tax efficient as a lot of cash distributions are shielded by depreciation uh, and all the cash out refinances are, are you know, aren't also um, uh, tax efficient. Uh, you know, they're, they're usually tax deferred, you know, you know, paying taxes when you make, take out a cash uh, when you could like, you know, refinance all your equity out. The con on the private side, in my opinion, is that it tends to be very pricey. I talk to a lot of people on the private side, and and they're telling me cap rates for multifamily is three and a half percent in 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 the Sun Belt, and I'm just like, I'm not near any, I'm nowhere near that kind of price, right? Like we're we're usually multifamily, we're getting in at like a six cap in the public market, but there's usually some sort of weird quirk where the market doesn't see the value. Uh, and as as you know, you're talking to a lot of broker. You're 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 kissing a lot of frogs, right? As opposed yeah. to on the public side, I think if I want to put capital to work, you know, if I want to put ten times more capital to work, usually it's just adding 
a zero to um, uh, you know to 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 the brokerage order. So there's um, and you you also have to buy the whole thing. You can't just buy small increments of a company or an asset. You're True. you're committing to the whole thing. So I would say those are the main pros and cons of public versus private. Yeah, no, you're, it's it's uh, it's it's spot on. And like anything in life, you know, if 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 one was uh, leaps and bounds uh, more productive or or monetarily more advantageous than the other, you know, the other one probably wouldn't exist. So that's why I find this fascinating. You know, but at the same time, you you've created such a niche uh, in in doing what you're doing where. Um, you've been able to take advantage of of some great opportunities over the years. I want to get to a couple of your your biggest holdings, um, and I sure. know you you know you've obviously put uh, put a lot of time and effort and analysis <laughs> underwriting in, into these companies. I'm curious to get get your thoughts. Uh, the first one is FRP Holdings. I know this is uh, a company, a stock that, that you've been you know, you've been buying heavily uh, recently, and it's one that uh, you know you you're very uh, passionate and, and knowledgeable about. You know, what's what what does FRP do, and um, you know why does it have a major position in in Rizo? Sure, and 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 I think the uh, going back to the earlier conversation about like what makes New York City so attractive, and 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 you know what are the characteristics that we look for in in a company. Uh, there's a lot of these characteristics in FRP, and I'll, I'll just go through. So FRP is a company um, that owns uh, about a dozen rock pits in Georgian, Florida, and they also sit on 20,000 acres of land. And the reason, you know, you know, I found this a couple of years ago. I was reading a book written by Peter Lynch, and Peter Lynch described it very succinctly. He said that, a rock pit or the aggregate business is one of the best businesses in the world because you sell a ton of rocks for ten dollars, but it costs you know it cost it costs ten dollars to truck it fifty miles. So by definition, so the very inherent worthlessness of the rocks is the reason why there's such valuable franchises because. It doesn't matter if you have amazing rocks in Chicago. If you're in New York and, and you need to build roads or do a construction project, you're not going to go to Chicago. You're not going to China. You're not even going to go, you know, a little bit further out. You have to buy it within the 50 mile radius. And that, by definition, means that you have the, the, the guys who own rock pits have a lot of pricing power. Uh, and they have so much pricing power. As a matter of fact, when we went through the housing bus, and the industry volume fell about 40, 50 percent. It, um, rock, uh, you know, the big poly traded aggregate producers like Mar Marietta and Vulcan, they actually increased their pricing unit price uh, by about three, four percent during the financial crisis. I mean, it's it just mind boggling. This is the opposite definition of a commodity product where the supply demand kind of dictates pricing. This, this, this is a this is an asset that has a ton of pricing power, even when industry demand fell 40, 50 percent. So we absolutely love that dynamic. Um, And also uh, these rock pits, a dozen of them, and we we personally saw them, uh, you know, we saw them in person. They sit on 20,000 acres in Georgia and Florida. So we, we've seen them. You know, they have a site in Fort Myer. And, and this this is all, all, going to sound almost too good to be true. They have a site in Fort Myer where they are getting paid about a million dollars a year 
for one of the operators to dig the rocks out of the ground. And in Fort Meyer, where, that's, where it sits, as you dig the rocks out of the ground, it, it naturally fills with this turquoise water that it's like a Bahama blue water. And by the time they're done in a few years, there'll be, there'll be a lake where they've already got the zoning, the permits uh, um, for 105 one acre lots. And down there in that area of Fort Myers. So, so, so it's like that story where, where Lex Luthor was, uh, Lex Luthor was going to bomb California and then part of it was going to fall into the ocean. And then he bought up all the land in the desert mm-hmm. and, and the desert land now is waterfront. It, right. it was like, that dynamic and you could literally invest in a scheme like that in a public market where where the rocks gets taken out of ground you get paid for someone to dig the rocks out of ground and then when they're done in call it like 2025 2026 now now you have prime waterfront lots that you could sell to a home buyer and down there people built five million dollar homes in fort meyer on less than one acre lot so each one of these lots are potentially worth a million dollars and and that's potentially you know over a hundred million dollar asset in 2028 when it's ready to be sold so when you look at a company like that and you say well that that asset is thrown off a million dollars a year what's it worth well, it's probably worth $50, $60 million because if you apply a 20% discount rate on that, uh, it's it, you know, on something that you'll sell for uh, probably $120, $130 million in, in eight, you know, seven, eight years from now, you put a 12% discount rate on that, you will still you know, come out to a $50 million today, but it's only thrown off a million dollars of cash flow. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of second life value to these assets. Uh, and every year you could count on these aggregates being able to increase the pricing. We just passed the infrastructure bill and, and that's got to create a lot of increased demand for aggregates, which which the company has already said that they believe that, uh, you know, th- they could increase pricing by double digits. So so this is a royalty stream. They sit there, they collect a royalty check. It is kind of 97% cash margin and it grows, wow. you can count on it growing, uh, you know, three, 4% a year for 60 years. And, and the reserve life is probably more than that uh, because as you dig down, you tend to find more rocks. So I, I could get really excited. I could get really excited talking about rockets, as you can see. I mean, <laughs> this Rock, I mean, yeah, rocks have never been so important until right now, right? <laughs> and and wow. and I could I could bet on you know as the market changes. I could I I am very certain in fifty years, Amazon, Google, nobody could disrupt this business because who who wants to disrupt a business for? Where, where the laws of physics, right? The laws of physics, because it, it costs $10 to truck these aggregates and you, you have to truck them to the job site. So we're very comfortable that this is not a business that gets disrupted. Yeah, no, you, you know, you talk about the moat and all that, you know, being a student of Buffett, all the the barriers of entry and it it's it's kind of um, ideal, you know, in, in a way. And you've, you've really... Uh, you know, identified a a really just, um, you know, kind of a, a gem of a company that's kind of at the same time hiding to a certain extent in, in plain sight. So that's, uh, that's definitely FRP is one to, um, you know, follow that at the very least. And maybe, um, 
you know, yeah. maybe, uh, you know, maybe maybe buy a few uh, shares if you if you have some disposable <laughs> well, income out there. Not not, not investment <laughs> advice. You know, this is purely for entertainment purposes. But but you know, FRP is a company that we could we could get really excited about. And and you know, like I, I think I just want to highlight some of the other assets that they own. Uh, so they used to own an old concrete plant in Washington D.C. right on the uh, right on the river Anacostia River. And they built the baseball stadium, Washington National Baseball Stadium. And it took them 10, 20 years of, you know, getting the zoning approval. And the government down there really want to add density. And if you go down to the Navy Yard, well, what is called Capital Riverfront today, it is a very vibrant area uh, that, that's got restaurants, shops, modern apartment buildings. There's a baseball stadium. Uh, and and we spent thousands of dollars, you know, eating at restaurants and 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 you know drinking at bars and whatnot, and 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 just really putting boots on the ground down there. And what was a old concrete mixing plant? Uh, they got zoning for a million square foot of waterfront uh, apartment development. And and since 2015, they built a half million square foot in two different buildings. Uh, probably like the best assets, best apartment buildings anywhere in the U.S. because it's right on the water. Again, going back to Buffett's moat, right? If you're on the water, if you're on the river, you can't build anymore. There's a physical limitation. Again, there's a moat protecting you from, from new supply. And uh, those apartments performed so well last year uh, where, where they kept the occupancy at 92% and they kept rent flat in D.C., uh, and a lot of it is because, the, you know, a lot of people down there, there's a lot of senior Navy Yard officers uh, who, who who rent from them. There's a lot of people work on Capitol Hill. The government didn't get shut down. And, and you know, while D.C. is still a growing market, there's also a very non-cyclical tenant base. Uh, it, it, it truly, I, I could get really excited. You know, they recently hosted Investor Day. We were there. And the amenities that they have, the location, uh, and they have, you know, the rights to develop another probably 750,000 square foot uh, right next to it and a little bit down down river. Uh, so when we look out 10 years, we could see that they have the right to de develop another, uh, they, they could probably build about a 1.6, 1.7 million square foot of kind of trophy class A multifamily on river in D.C. So we're very excited about that. And the last thing I want to mention is a management team. Uh, it, you know, in a way, um, it, this is a management team where we track every project they've done. I think on on average they they've achieved over twenty percent IRs. And this is a management team that is not afraid to sell assets when they get approached. I mean, this this is a Baker family that owns uh, Florida Rock Industries, um, right before the housing bubble burst, they got approached by Vulcan to be bought out. And they looked at the deal term. They said, we owe it to our shareholders. This is a really, really good deal. We don't want to sell this business, but we owe it to our shareholders. We have to sell. And then when they sold Florida Rock Industries, they came over to FRP. And, and the, in 2000, uh, 2018, they got approached by Blackstone. Blackstone wanted to buy their warehouse portfolio, and they sold that for $359 million. So this is a, this, this is a family that, that they're, they're like, they're like quasi-billionaire servants in a way, in that they're working for us, and we could get in, you know, at, at, at my estimate, we, we were able to buy at half price. So 
when I talk about FRP, I, I, I get really, <laughs> I get really excited about the company because you got great assets, right. great long-term prospect, great kind of pipeline to grow. And then we're, we're invested with great people there. That's kind of the, the Holy grail, right? I mean, uh, you know, that's what, that's what, that's what you dream of. Uh, yes. When, when you're looking at, at these companies, another one, I know that, that, uh, that you've that you're super excited about and and own in the portfolios is Clipper. Um, that's that's something that company that me and you have 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 discussed in in length. You know what what does Clipper do? What is Clipper? And you know similar to FRP, why why are you so excited about it? So Clipper owns mostly apartment buildings in the New York City area. And uh, it's 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 one of the uh, best pure play. Um, to bet on New York City recovery on the residential side. And again, you know what I was saying there earlier about uh, about every 10 years you get an opportunity to to invest in New York City residential at you know at a good price. And um, uh, it, it's a company that we follow for quite a few years. Uh, and we finally during COVID, we had an opportunity to um, to make an investment at about 40% of their IPO price. Um, and, um, what they own is they own about 3.4 million square foot of mostly residential. Uh, there's a couple apartment buildings there, uh, and the trophy asset is, is a building called Tribeca house in uh, Tribeca. And then there's a building called Clover house uh, right by Dumbo, which, you know, for those outside of New York city stands for down, uh, you know, down by Brooklyn bridge. And what's really interesting is that I think for, still for uh, it really was until recently people still had the narrative that people don't want to be in new york city people moving the way you needed to give two three month concession to get an apartment rent and that was all true that was all true early early in 2021 but that changed very very quickly uh because the vacancy in new york city you know, naturally, New York City functions on a one to two percent vacancy. It's very hard to find apartments, and and on in a normal market, rent would go up by three four percent a year. That's the norm rather than the exception. And COVID was very unique in that people moved out in droves, and as um as, you know, as incentive to get you know more you know more heads in beds, a lot of these apartment buildings gave two, three-month concessions in early 2021. But what ended up happening was that that drew in uh, a large in-migration of younger, uh, kind of like my brother-in-law. Uh, you know, he was living at home, and he finally saw an opportunity to move into Brooklyn, into a nice, you know, apartment, duplex apartment in Brooklyn at a very affordable price. Uh, and it drew in this big influx of people in their 20s who could actually afford to live in New York City for the first time, and they responded in droves. And and what happened was all those places got filled up, and then and then all of a sudden the people the 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 family that moved away realized that they actually miss New York City. They want to come back. The university starts to have in person classes. And and everyone kind of all came back at the same time, and and kind of by around the summer you start you start hearing bidding wars, you start hitting bidding wars that people were getting into bidding wars, people were paying above ask for apartments, which is a complete 180. But this this is kind of the inefficiency of the public market sometimes. Sometimes people get so wrapped up in narratives that they don't 
they don't notice that 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 kind of groundswell, that that kind of on the ground, uh, uh, you know, development. And and we, because of the, our private investment in New York City, we're you know very close to the ground, and we notice that. And 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 uh, you know, we built a position last year uh, because we want to um, you know bet on the recovery in New York City, but we really added to it uh, this year uh, because. We believe that you're getting paid, uh, you know, from a valuation perspective, it's about $2 billion worth of uh, real estate. We're paying about a billion four, and there's a billion dollars of debt. It's all non-recourse. It's all at the building level, and there's no maturity until 2027. So we believe that this is like, you know, one of the best ways to play as these older leases that has a lot of concession rose off. And you you sign new leases at rent that is above 2019 pre-COVID levels, and as some of the older leases you know uh, row off, and people people you know want to stay in the buildings, you could kind of you know take the rent up. I think I think we're we're we're, we're poised for a period of rapid rent growth, and uh, but at the same time the share price is still very depressed. You know share price is depressed; it's still below their IPO price. And uh, we estimate that uh, we're buying in at about four and a half percent cap rate on a um, uh, on based on very trough COVID levels. Uh, but you know, if we normalize to kind of pre-COVID rent, we we bought New York State apartments at a six percent cap rate uh, with fifty percent you know in place leverage. So so that's a bet that we're willing to make all day, any day. You know. Uh, that's why we're particularly interested in Clipper. Mm. Again, not investment advice. Please do your own research. But this, you know, this is another position that we're particularly excited about. I, you know, what we we notice, we talk to other investors, we 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 monitor, you know, investment forums. It seems like there's a slow sh- shift in investor sentiment from the New York City is dead to wow, this this is actually a great time to play New York City recovery. Yeah, no, it uh, your your thesis analysis is is in depth and thorough, and uh, you know certainly the 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 concept makes a lot of sense. And you know, being someone who is familiar with you know real estate and specifically New York and in, in um, you know New York specifically, it uh, you know it kind of seems like all the signs are there for you know a company that has done well, but you know will will continue to thrive. And and like Bill said. You know, this is not investment advice, you know, to all the listeners, you know, make sure to do your own research, your own analysis. Uh, you know, this is strictly for educational purposes. So what's what's next, Bill, for for you, for Rhizome? Do you have do you do you plan, you know, in one year, in five years, in 10 years? Uh, I want to do this. I want to, you know, this many assets under management or, you know, or, or, you know, have specific goals um, in mind. Where, you know, where do you see, um, you know, where do you see Rhizome and, and yourself? Where, where do you see things headed? I think the, um, um, you know, I, th- I thought about this and I think the most important goal is to stay in a game. Remember what I was talking about, like the athletic uh, career was only five years, and 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 yep. I, I just want to stay in a game. Uh, I want to stay in a game. I'm gonna keep doing this for 20, 30 years, and and every decision that I make is is to enable me to stay in a game. That's I think I, that's very important, and that's how we create the most value because it takes time 
for compounding to really for, for you to be really rewarded with the with the uh, benefits of compounding. It just takes time. Number two is we want to create value for our partners. We want to be helpful. We want to stay true to the value of rhizome. And and you know we don't we didn't get to talk about like rhizome. What is rhizome? Rhizome are underground roots that grows outward. So you know there's there's a, a aspen forest in in Colorado that that it's 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 hundreds of acres, but it all came from one tree. And if we, if I could put it into a slogan, it would be it it grows fast, but very difficult to be destroyed. And same thing with running bamboos, right? Running bamboos have rhizomes as roots. And once you plant them, you can't get rid of them and, and it grows fast. So we want to be able to compound capital quickly and, and we want to create value, we want to be helpful to our partners. Um, you know, the third goal would be, I want to grow as a person. I want to grow as an investor. I want to stick to our process. We're, we're not going to reach, you know, 2020 was a year where people bet heavily on COVID recoveries and, uh, you know, COVID beneficiaries. And, and we stuck to our, our process. Um, you, you know, it, it's it's the process. It's enjoying the game. It's, it's being open-minded, being curious, continue to learn, continue to improve. And 10 years out, the end result is an output, right? The the end end result is an output. Like how much we manage, um, you, you know, uh, that that's that's an output. You know, the, the what, what's key to stick to you is is the love of the game, the sticking to the process. Um, you know, more immediately, we we probably would like to build out. Uh, Add on a couple couple people. We uh, and, and I kind of want to use this opportunity to. Um, to, to throw it out there, you know, if there are younger, talented people who, who may be interested in interning for us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get in touch with us. Uh, we we are just south of, I work out of Beach House, just south of JFK, which you've come and come out and hung, hung out with me. It's lovely here in the summer. You know, we're contemplating about hiring for summer intern for 2022. Uh, it, it's just a very lovely, awesome place to to work, uh, and and you know you get access to the international airport, you get access to New York City, uh, you know that's something in the short term. I think you know we do want to start developing some talent. I really like mentoring and coaching. I have amazing coaches when I was playing sports. I really love the aspect of mentoring young people. Uh, so, you know, I'm going to use your platform to try to get the word out, Matt. Yeah, no, we, we certainly will. Um, yeah, I can, I can speak, uh, towards you, Bill, and how, how, how impressed I am, uh, you know, with all that you do and, and more so, uh, just the, the, the person that you are and, you know, you've, you've taken the time to educate me, you know, going back years and years when, you know, when I was getting started in, in the business in real estate and, and you were, you know, you were really there since, since the beginning. Um, you know, I remember the first property that I bought, uh, you know, I gave you a call, you know, expecting, you know, Hey, you know, this guy's busy. He'll, you know, maybe give me five, 10 minutes. It, it ended up being this really in-depth, I think at least an hour long conversation. And I always, I always appreciated that. Um, it really kind of, you, you fortified that that investment at that time was, was something that, we should have been doing. And, um, you know, I, I always appreciated, uh, the fact that, you know, you took that time and, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, I've come, I've come to visit you and, uh, not only, um, 
you know, has it been a pleasure uh, learning, but just, uh, you know, getting to spend that quality time and have lunch and walk around. And, you know, like you mentioned, it's uh, for anyone out there who hasn't been to that area where, where Bill is, um, you know, it's uh, it's really a special, a special place. So uh, highly recommend getting in touch. Bill, what's um, your, you know, if you could provide a website or maybe an email address, uh, you know, how can how can people out there uh, get in touch with you? Sure. I mean, I think the best way is uh, via email. Uh, it is uh, bill at rhizomepartners.com. And just uh, to spell out rhizome, it is Romeo Hotel India Zulu Oscar Mike Echo. Uh, rhizome Partners. So that's bill at rhizomepartners.com. That's the best way to reach uh, reach out to me. We, we may launch an official Rhizome Partners Twitter uh, that, you know, I'm still contemplating. Uh, but, you know, my email is the best way to reach out. Uh, again, you know, I'm on the beach. If people just want to come out and, you know, have a walk and talk on the beach, have coffee, or people want to reach out and, uh, you know, go get ethnic food in, in Queens <laughs> and Brooklyn or, or you know, a Korean barbecue or Chinese food or dim sum. I mean, you know, I, I've been mistaken for David Chan or Momofuku once. So, <laughs> so I'm interested. You're, you're, Bill, you're you're making me hungry over here. What are you doing? Well, you, you, should, you should come out again. We'll, get, we'll go get them some, or we we'll uh, go get some some Chinese food and Chinese or Korean barbecue. In I just I had lunch before we started taping, and now it's uh, you know it's I'm getting I'm starving listening to this. Uh, you know, you talk about, and I know how good you know I've I've had the opportunity to have a couple meals with you and um you know you certainly know uh you know you know what that's another skill you have is uh you know being able to you know pick some pick some great uh, dishes when when we've gone out to to restaurants so i would you're, highly you're, yeah. you're too kind matt you're too kind <laughs> but i i you know bill's not kidding in that he um you know he's he, he's willing to take the time he's uh it's it's the opportunity to be able to speak with him is uh is extremely valuable so we'll we'll put a link to um in the show notes we'll we'll also put a link to uh to bill's web to bill's email address so you could just click on that and uh you know highly highly recommend um you know this is something you're interested whether just learning more um about rhizome or maybe even um, you know, spending, uh, you know, spending some time with Bill and, and the internship sounds like a great opportunity. So highly recommend getting in touch. And uh, Bill, thanks again for taking the time. This was uh, such an informative conversation, educational, your story, um, you know, your your family story and 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 everything that you've you've uh, you know, you, you've accomplished is uh, is really in, incredible and worthwhile, I think, for for all the listeners to hear. So keep up the good work and um, looking forward to, uh, you know, to, to keeping in touch and, um, you know, continuing to follow, uh, you know, all the, um, you know, all the all the great uh, things that, that you're doing. So I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Well, Matt, you are you are too kind with your words. And uh, let's come out, you know, when it gets a little warmer next year, we'll go we'll, we'll go take surfing lessons together out here. Sounds sounds like a plan. I'll have to wear a uh, life jacket, and uh, but you know, as long as as long as you don't let me drown, we'll I'll I'll be there. <laughs> okay, sounds good. That's a plan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Dives with our guest Bill Chen. Deep Dives can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
and wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Deep Dives.